Hi, this is Ross Mars. Welcome to Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on the probiotic life. to another episode of The Probiotic Life. I'm your host, Ben Klenner. Today on the show, we have a doctor of environmental science known to some as Dr. Greywater. Ross Mars is an author, a teacher, and has 20 years experience in the field of greywater and wastewater. He's the Managing Director of Water Installations, which is a company based here in Perth, Western Australia. Uh, He is also an accredited permaculture design teacher and teaches people how to teach permaculture. So join us as Ross shares a bit of his journey and we discuss the development of permaculture. We talk about grey water systems, um, Australian native herbs and medicinal plants And we talk about how we can utilize water more effectively in our environment. So this episode is a bit of an insight into how we use water here in Western Australia, but I think the principles can be utilized in any climate. And thank you to all of you who have been sharing the podcast, uh, giving it a rating and review. That helps get the podcast out there to more people. So if you think that this podcast is of value, if you got some value out of it and you want to share it around, uh, share it on Facebook, share it uh, with your friends, give us a rating and review. And we always love to see the hashtag probiotic life on Instagram as well. So kick back and relax and join me on this insightful interview into water with Dr. Ross Mars. Our guest today is an accredited permaculture design teacher, an author, and a doctor of environmental science. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ross Mars. G'day, Ben. Thanks thanks for having me on the show. Um, And thanks for participating in this podcast that we call The Probiotic Life. So um, it's great to have you on the show and someone who's... um, in my own backyard, pretty much, in Perth, Western Australia? Yes. Well, a hills boy. I've been out in the hills for quite a few years now, but, yeah, Perth-based. Fantastic. So um, let, let's go back. I always like to delve a bit into the story of um, why people are doing what they're doing. So I'm interested to know, you know, how did you – first of all, how did you get into permaculture? And maybe before that – what were some of the um, the experiences in your childhood or growing up that really sort of got you on this direction, on this path? Um, well, I had a, uh, a normal childhood per se. And, and, and in the uh, 50s and 60s, uh, when I grew up, uh, everybody had uh, a bit of an orchard and uh, grew their own vegetables. And so I grew up in that culture with my father doing that and my grandfather doing that and I learned a lot of things just by uh, mainly weeding actually, uh, going out there and uh, and working and growing things and I continue that into my young adulthood uh, and still today uh, love plants, love growing things. Uh, getting into the permaculture was a while, I kind of knew about permaculture for a while and then uh, but my wife Jenny got involved first and did a course and then I tagged along and so forth and so forth, and eventually um, I did my own course uh, and then started teaching. So it was a while before you got into permaculture. So you, you actually did your um, in, environmental science uh, degree first, is that right? Well, I trained uh, as an industrial chemist and couldn't get a job, um, and I was doing some part-time lab work at a school and uh, ended up becoming a teacher. So then I went back and become a teacher, and then because I was teaching, and I was a chem- chemistry person uh, in, 
my first degree. And, but I was teaching biology, and so I then did some an honours degree in biology as well as the teaching qualifications, and then I had an interest in the permaculture side of things and then started to look at uh, what special area I wanted to move in. I moved into water, uh, wastewater. And uh, so I did a part-time PhD over a number of years and did my research at the original Canlite farm in Hovia, and that's how it all began. Wow, very interesting. So, so it sounds like you had a bit of a, um, a diverse uh a lot of diverse training in a lot of areas which really all uh, come back to being able to teach permaculture and teach teachers of permaculture. Is that right? Yeah, that's basically what I do these days. I uh, used to teach my own design courses for for quite a long, or probably 25 years. Uh, But uh, in the last 10 years or so, I've been focusing more about teaching others to uh, run these courses, uh, but also to... Uh, introduced to Western Australia the accredited permaculture training stuff, so like the Cert 3, Cert 4 diploma, which leads on to university. So that's where I'm focusing at the moment, and I let others do the basic permaculture courses, and I focus on the training stuff, and then I'm at the moment training others to teach these courses uh, in, in the years to come, and uh, also training teachers to deliver these in schools. So we already have one school with a few more happening next year, teaching a Cert 1 or Cert 2 as a vet program in a, in a high school, which is great news. Okay, that's very interesting. So um, I know we haven't specifically talked about permaculture on the podcast, but a lot of our um, guests have been into permaculture. Um, so from, from what I understand, the way that sort of um, Bill Mollison, David Holmgren sort of developed it, it was they didn't want to have a, a structured sort of learning system, but now that's coming along. Can you explain to us a little bit about how that developed? Well, the, uh, in the early days, um, Mollison developed the permaculture design course, which is like a 72-hour, two-week type course, which was uh, the one that's universally recognised as the basic permaculture course um, for people who get some training, if you like, in uh, designing and and a bit about plants and integrated systems. But uh, probably, again, 10 or so years ago, um, there was a move by uh, some people in the organisation, the general permaculture community, to develop accredited training courses so that people could actually get a real certificate, like a Cert 3 or a Cert 4 in permaculture, as much the same as they'd go to TAFE and do a Cert 3 in horticulture or conservation land management. So we'd looked at uh, developing those courses, and that's had a a bit of evolution over the last 10 years. And a couple of years ago, the updated version of those courses came into being, and now they're being taught in various places around Australia. Okay, so this is uh, an, an Australian development or is this a worldwide sort of development? No, it's an Australian-only development. It's uh, tied into the national curriculum framework and so it's on par with any other certificate course that you might do at TAFE or a higher college. Right, uh, okay. So, so that it is, that's quite interesting that um, if, uh, it's gone down this way because it really means that it's been recognised or accepted more by the mainstream. Is that right? Yeah, that's basically it. It's a recognised uh, <clears throat> qualification. Um, you know, it's, it's open. Uh, the government recognises it as part of a training package, the Agriculture, Horticulture and Conservation Training Package. So um, when you look at the units in permaculture that were developed, there's um, a lot of different units. In fact, there's more units in permaculture than any other discipline in that training package. So more units in agriculture, more units than horticulture. Because permaculture is pretty holistic and it covers not only just plants and animals and integrated systems, but it covers all aspects of human settlement. So you're looking at how we design our houses and building them out of renewable, or using renewable energy, you know, using uh, reclaimed products, uh, using appropriate building materials like straw bale or mud brick or whatever resources people have. So there's a whole lot more involved in in the permaculture side of things other than just traditional growing plants and having a garden. Mm -hmm. And that's what you um, showcase at your Canlite farm. Is that right? Basically, my property is only a hectare 
it's pretty compact, uh, lots of stock gardens and that kind of stuff. And we do some of the training here so people can actually see the stuff in action. There's a lot of technologies here, if you like, and uh, they can also have the space to do the training. So they might learn to make some concrete or make some mud bricks or lay a straw bale or make a seat. Or At the moment, my class is building a pizza oven. So that's where things are heading. So that's what we're looking at. So they have the training and then they go and practice at home. Oh, fantastic. And so yeah, you, you moved from permaculture or you did decided to focus on, on water and you uh, currently run a business or own a business, water installations? Yeah. So um, many years ago, I kind of looked at my options in terms of what I wanted to study and where I was heading. I had to design a grey water system for a house I built in the early 90s, around about 1990, in fact, so that got my interest in grey water and so I designed a system, got it all approved, got it put into the property and uh, I kept working uh, with along those lines and then finally deciding to get a formal qualification and do the research, which I did as part of the PhD. So I'm Dr. Grey Water. Dr. Uh, grey water, awesome. <laughs> and, and so what did that involve doing? What sort of uh, research did you do? Uh, my main research was looking at native wetland plants stripping nutrients from grey water. So I, I had one particular plant, one of the water ribbons family, Triglocken, which I studied. But I compared that to about six or seven other wetland plants, looking at how well they strip nutrients from wastewater and grey water uh, and how they all functioned and their structure. And so I did some experiments at my home. I was allowed to do, could do that quite easily. And over the six years, I uh, did lots of experiments and lots of results and lots of interpretation and finally a thesis uh, that was accepted. Mm, okay. So so can you give us a bit of an overview of, of what you actually found um, in, in layman's terms? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, wetland plants have special adaptations to live in kind of uh, water environments, obviously, and provide, uh, you know, the way they're structured their leaves to channel oxygen down to the roots and around the roots there's some uh, bacteria and that's what uh, breaks down the nutrients etc and the plants themselves do take up nutrients they can store nutrients in their leaves and 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 have growth so plants generally might take up 10 or 15 percent of the nutrients that pass through but a lot of the other nutrients so the nitrogen type stuff and the phosphorus things are possibly broken down by the bacteria that live in the roots of the plants and that's probably the biggest uh, important aspect of it is looking at the, the right kind of uh, ecosystem underneath the ground in the water that allows uh, water to be cleaned. Right. So this is very fascinating to me because um, part of my journey of, I guess, quote unquote, living a probiotic life was starting about uh, six or seven years ago with aquaponics and learning that it's actually the microbes that that drive the system. It's not necessarily the fish poo or anything, but it's the microbes. So, what what sort of uh, uh, environment is created in in that root zone or in, in that interface? What what sort of happens there? Well, it's a little microcosm of lots of different types of organisms, um, a lot of bacteria and different types of bacteria, and probably other types of things, amoebas and protozoans and everything else like that. Uh, all living happily. It's an aerobic environment. So uh, whereas wastewater from the pe- person's body or grey water often contains a lot of the disease-causing uh, bacteria, the uh, pathogenic ones, which tend to exist in um, anaerobic or low oxygen levels, when they hit a reed bed system, for example, they're confronted with oxygen and uh, other bugs. And the other bugs in the auction uh, just kind of eliminate most of the pathogens. So the advantage of using uh, that kind of really oxygen-rich area around the roots, what we call the rhizosphere, um, enables um, nutrients to be assimilated into plant tissue or, or whatever or, or, or broken down and released, uh, like nitrogen may be, to the atmosphere. Uh, but it also is uh, a barrier, if you like, to uh, the anaerobic bacteria and the nasties that might be in wastewater or grey water. So it actually cleans up the water quite a lot and reduces uh, the risk of disease. Okay, that, that's very interesting. You know, we talk to people like um, Dan Kittridge or Graham Sait, which really they they have really talked about 
how the rhizosphere is quite similar on the, a root plant, a plant of a root, um, a root of a plant, quite similar to what happens in our gut, but just uh, uh, inwardly. So we've got the, you know, everything going on there and then there's different stages. So is there, a, is there beneficial parts of, a, of the system that, um, is there parts of the system that's beneficial to be uh, anaerobic? Of course, um, you know, to to if you wanted to reduce nutrient levels in water, say nitrogen, for example, and the nitrogen could be in different forms, different organic forms. It could be ammonia, it could be uh, nitrates or nit or, or nitrites. So different bacteria work on different molecules, and you need to have some that don't have the air, and they take the their energy, if you like, from the oxygen part in the compound. So. You might find nitrates are converted to nitrites and, and the oxygen reduction is how the bacteria get their energy and so forth and so forth. So then the nitrates are converted down to nitrogen gas and the same thing, the, the bacteria which don't live in, in air, they live in anaerobic conditions, will utilise the chemical reaction to get the energy they need to survive. Mm, okay. At the same time, the, the products are made and then released or changed and that's how it all works. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is so fascinating to me, Ross. Um, you know, the, the last couple of years I've been developing from an aquaponic system to more of like a, a natural little ecosystem. So I'm thinking about how all these things that, that, are, that are implemented in that sort of system. But I guess before we get, you know, bogged down in too much information, what, what sort of uh, gets you going these days? What, what, what's, what are you passionate about these days? What, what do you like to see out of your day? Um, well, my day is pretty chock-a-block. Uh, obviously, I run a business. I have uh, guys working for me. Uh, I do a bit of consulting out, out, out on site and trying to help people to live more sustainably. So the, the permaculture is, if you like, the overarching umbrella of all the things that I do, whether it's the writing or the books or um, uh, the courses or my work itself, my main work or my, or my nursery. I have a part-time nursery. So I, I do a lot of different things, and that's that variety is, is good for me. Uh, so I enjoy uh, teaching others. I enjoy others, uh, you know, show, showing what they've learnt and then themselves being become teachers. Uh, and that's rewarding if you can leave that legacy behind. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, thinking more in the future, thinking for future generations. Well, basically, uh, as I'm getting older, I need to have some plan of succession. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at the end of the day, I'd like to spend more time here and spend less time at work. Um, and I'm working towards that plan and hoping you know, my children, stepchildren will be able to take over the business and uh, carry on in that sense. Uh, that allows me to free up some time here to develop other, other interests I have at home. Um, and then obviously I'm, I'm training others to do, to teach these courses and training others to develop the units, etc., so that they can continue themselves and have that career pathway. So in one sense, I'm trying to uh, develop courses, get them all established, and then handball it to others. Mm, okay. So so really developing that sense or that, that legacy and um – I guess more than just your personal legacy, what do you see for um, permaculture in Western Australia? Where do you see that going? Well, it's uh, thriving pretty well. It's A lot of it's really underground, so to speak. Uh, people are just getting on with it. Uh, a lot of people over the years have done courses and have developed gardens, and most people just kind of get on with it. They see it, you know, on the TV and Gardening Australia and other things like that, and uh, it's more – and then lots of magazines um, and documentaries. So it's, it's pretty commonplace – um, uh, some people just think it's gardening, uh, but obviously it's a lot more than that. And um, and I think that that idea of people, you know, trying to find out where their where their food uh, comes from, um, is important for some. And the type of food that they're digesting is a lot of a lot of uh, information and documentaries, etc., about some of the perils and the ills of society in terms of the the food choices people are making. And so there's a huge movement, if you like, to um, for people to live more sustainably, uh, especially the younger generation, who kind of understand those things and have been taught a little bit of that at school and coming up. So you'll find they want to put rainwater tanks in, or they want to do grey water systems in their new homes, or they want you know some gardens and grow some veggies. 
In fact, if you ask most nurseries, the biggest seller of uh, of late is is vegetable seedlings. So little punters of seedlings are going out the door. Mm. People are starting to grow their own food again, which is great to see. It, it's great to see that whole um, movement gaining momentum. You know, uh, we talked to Joel Salatin a while ago and what he's doing there on his farm with what he calls the ballet in the pasture of, of moving all the different animals in succession uh, very quickly through the through the pasture, so they're actually building carbon in the soil. And um, a lot of people my age, you know, um, and younger than millennials, are really getting involved in like, hey, I have the power to to change something. What am I going to do about it? Yeah, well, I think that's true. Everybody forges their own direction of life, built on their own experiences and their worldview. And I guess if you, you know, always have a quest for further knowledge and understanding and and you build up your understanding and knowledge of things, you kind of understand you do have choice and you do have options. And so uh, I made options and choices a long time ago mm. and uh, continue to, to walk that path as best I can. And people like Joel are doing some great work, you know, in terms of the broad acre stuff and uh, so forth. Um, and really is trying to see how that would apply uh, in Australia and Western Australia. And people are doing those techniques over here, uh, even though it's uh, probably low-key at this point in time. But there's certainly a, a shift in the farming community to look at better ways to farm. I mean, a lot of farmers are either getting bigger or getting out. Mm-hmm. There's uh, a lot of uh, distress on farmers in terms of the uh, time and money and effort they put into farming for the the lower return and with our changing climate and other things, uh, there's going to be some pressures put on to farmers and farming systems. And uh, there's a huge surge in farmers switching to organic and also to biodynamic, strangely enough, Mm -hmm. um, so that they're kind of trying to make it more profitable and viable. For sure. Yeah, I'm a big uh, proponent of Korean natural farming, which is similar to... um, the, you know, the one-straw re- revolution, Masanobu Fukuoka's yeah. sort of style of doing things. So there's all there's lots of knowledge out there. Um, but uh, I'd, I'd like to come back to, you, you've done a bit of study and you, I think, Russ, whether, whether you like it or not, you're a bit of a legend here in Perth. Um, I've heard about your studies with Comfrey. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, uh, you know, I'm a scientist uh, I'm always in, in, inquiring and and I basically tried um, a few years ago when I wrote my last book, uh, How to Permaculture Your Life. Um, I wanted to write a book that was based on fact and um, so I started to research, uh, you know, p- fruits and vegetables and herbs. Uh, I wanted to know what was the 10 best nutritious fruits. I wanted to know what's the 10 best, you know, nutritious uh, vegetables and which herbs really have medicinal properties. So I um, undertook some research um, looking for scientific papers and, um, and you know, found some interesting things. But I wanted to only make sure that some of the myths that we perpetuated, certainly through permaculture and organic growing, were dispelled. And Comfrey is one of those. Um, while, you know, I recognise it has kind of some properties and stuff uh, – the scientific proof to, to show that uh, knits bones and and is the miracle herb is uh, not quite established as yet. Not to saying that uh, more research won't find new things about comfrey and other lots of other herbs. But we've had our knowledge of those kind of herbs like, um, you know, St. John's wort and the comfreys of the world, um, you know, basically brought up from historical uh, folklore um, and writings from you know practice organic practice many years ago, and we just accepted all that without without any proof. Mm. And uh, my my big push now is to make sure before we start teaching these kind of things or promoting these things that they are based on fact. So um, interesting things ahead. I think there's a lot of scope to to research herbs and things. A lot of the things you always hear about about the goji berry being you know the miracle food of the of today's probably being pushed, and the same with blueberry, pushed by those growing those products or trying to sell the, the product rather than science behind it saying that they are they do have these properties. So I, I was disappointed uh, in a lot of ways to find there weren't many herbs that have been proven scientifically to actually work. 
Right. Okay. It is. It it is a fine line um, of, you know, there is a, a resurgence of like medicinal sort of like uh, apothecary uh, and or the folklore that goes with it. So there's that fine line of that between that and scientific, because we want to encourage people to use herbs, right? Well, I do at yeah. least. Uh, yeah, of course. No, I I, I I use herbs. I grow herbs. Um, I'm a strong believer that they they uh, are useful. And we certainly have some herbs that uh, are pest repellent. We have some herbs we can use yeah, for culinary purposes and obviously some that are medicinal. Uh, I just, at this point, you know, looking at what's out there, trying to be cautious about, you know, promoting things and teaching things that uh, are probably more based on folklore and myth than, than on uh, scientific evidence. The problem with the science is that the people haven't done the research it's not that the herbs may not have these beneficial things from, you know, historical, uh, anecdotal kind of evidence. Uh, it's more that no one's undertaken the, the fully rigid science aspects. So uh, I'm just saying that be cautious. Um, just try to find out a bit about what you can scientifically to make sure that what you're doing is is probably going to be safe for people. Right. So so in in terms of the, the specifically the the comfrey, I know there was the, the the bocking trials and then everyone wants to get the bocking 14 because that's a sort of sterile um, uh, version of the comfrey. So are you saying that those trials were more anecdotal than actually scientifically set up? Well, I don't, I don't know those particular ones. I'm just looking at generally what I've found in my right, research. Okay. Um, I'm just saying that uh, as more research is undertaken, more evidence will be will be assimilated and, and accepted, and that's what we want to see. I think the jury is out on lots of things we have in the past accepted as being uh, these great things. I mean, at the end of the day, tea tree oil is proven to be uh, antifungal and antibacterial. I mean, you know, there are some that uh, that are definites, you know, and um, you know some of the peppers and and things do have medicinal properties. So uh, there are some things that have been you know shown to be very good. There's a lot of bush medicines, Aboriginal bush medicines that are getting looked at, and some uh, you know historical through uh, Aboriginal kind of you know folklore of being passed on as various cures, but we haven't done the research to prove that they, they are, which is the problem, and that's why there's so much interest in some of our own plants in Australia to find people to do the research to see how we can use them better. Mm-hmm. And and on that note, you do grow some um, native edibles, is that right? Uh, yeah, we do have a range of bush uh, tucker plants and we have a range of bush medicine plants, um, including tea tree oil. Um, so we're just trying to find, and a lot of that, again, is uh, um, you know based on Aboriginal culture. Um, some may have uh, medicinal, you know, truly medicinal properties, but as I said, the research hasn't been undertaken. But there are people trying to find the active ingredients of some of these things are certainly a lot of interest in finding the cure for cancer mm. and to find uh, what plants uh, could hold the key. And certainly Australian plants uh, are being investigated. Mm. Mm-hmm. So are you doing any research at the moment while you're um, doing your water installations? Well, I, I am. I'm always doing some stuff. We've um, put in a couple of uh, new wastewater systems called Root Zone, which is like a reed bed for a septic tank reed bed. So it's um, uh, trying to improve the old septic tank system, which, um, you know, has been shown to be, you know, pretty, pretty bad. And uh, as opposed to the full-on aerobic treatment unit, which is an expensive option for people, uh, has to be serviced and maintained, it has a high running cost. So we're trying to find that balance between... Um, getting better quality water that people can use uh, uh, in a landscape uh, for an amenity as opposed to – and have lower running costs. So the root zone is, is such a system where you can have um, a normal septic tank per se, then you have a couple of tubs of reeds, etc. where all these processes we talked about earlier are happening. So we've got an anaerobic zone and we've got an aerobic zone in these reed bed tubs and then at the end, uh, probably about 85% of the water will still pass out and be pumped out. So 
the reeds themselves don't take all the water up. They only take up probably 15%, you know, through evaporation and transpiration. So the majority of it's been passed out and pumped out to irrigation so that people can actually recycle their toilet waste and kitchen waste and everything else to a really good high standard and can be used to grow lawn or to grow, you know, fruit trees or whatever it might be. So I'm kind of uh, put those systems in and we've just got them uh, all, all uh, operational and we have to service these things every six months. So we're going to collect the data uh, about the water quality, you know, what comes in and what goes out, so to speak, and have a look at the effectiveness of these systems uh, so that we can obviously further promote them. It's very interesting. Um, I've seen s- something similar. You're probably familiar with it, the um, earth ships that they build and have the whole um, water system enclosed in in there, so grey water, um, yeah. black water, all that sort of stuff. Have you done yeah. any projects sort of like that? Not to that degree, no. I'm, I'm familiar with those systems and, uh, you know, they have various tubs and various things going on there and then they have fish living in them and that kind of stuff. That's that, that's what happens in China a lot too. There's, okay. They have all the wastewater from a village going into a series of ponds and time it gets to probably the fourth or fifth pond, the water's reasonably clean and there's, and there's lots of fish growing and then they <laughs> can eat the fish. And that's basically what the whole idea of a lot of research was done uh, to recycle the wastes and to have plants growing in it and so forth. And uh, that's a lot of management. And mm. um, that's probably probably a bit more tricky to ha- have over in Western Australia in terms of the, uh, you know, the health standards and what's expected uh, in our climate. Right. Okay. So, so there's a few barriers of, um, to entry of building these things. Well, there would be some barriers. Um, obviously, we, we have uh, an unusual climate in the sense that we have uh, high rainfalls for a short time and the rest of the time is pretty dry and stark. Uh, we also have uh, virus and other kind of mosquito-borne diseases. Um, we're also conscious of, uh, you know, stag pools and, and warm weather creating uh, the wrong kind of conditions and, and creating uh, pathogens and promoting that and obviously odour. So, you know, the health department here has some very stringent guidelines uh, about water quality, um, and and that's fair. You know, we, we don't want to, to jeopardise people's health and well-being by playing around with uh, wastes, really. Right. So yeah. while we do play with wastes, we kind of do it in a way that's probably reasonably safe. We know that we can kind of, uh, you know, reduce the, the risk of disease, et cetera, and, that, and that's, that is important. Mm, okay, yeah. So this makes me think, Russ, of, you know, um, whether I'm – I haven't probably done this in, in uh, Western Australia, but when I grew up in Vancouver, you know, hiking up a mountain, you see a, a little uh, stream, uh, looks nice and fresh, and you just drink the water, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it because it's at the top of the watershed. It's obviously yeah. obviously been filtered. Um, how, how do we – I'd like to figure out how can we incorporate that into – some of these systems so we have like fresh drinking water is that even possible um well if you're you're trying to take toilet waste and and gray water and try to do that you'd probably struggle to uh (laughs) to take take all the nutrients out you take them down to enough level that it would be safe to drink i mean we drink water that has some nutrients in anyway some salts etc it's not distilled water what we drink um so, you know, and people do drink rainwater, they do drink boar water, you know, or whatever water may be, uh, you know, available to them if they don't have the scheme water. Um, and, you know, there are risks, but you can kind of uh, mitigate some of that by, you know, filtering it, by aerating it, uh, letting it kind of mix and stand mm. and uh, dilute around a little bit um, and disinfecting with UV. So there's a whole range of things to to, to make things clean and, in nature, uh, as you mentioned, with the stream and you know, going through soil, uh, that's simply a good way in which you can clean water up is just passing it through some kind of filter, whether it's a sand filter or some other type of filter or a fabric filter. And having filters in play just uh, does capture a lot of sediment and organic matter, uh, even some microbes if the filter's fine enough. So some of the membranes that are used in some wastewater systems mm can actually filter out, if you like, or or not let bacteria uh, pass. So you can almost get pure water 
Um, but there's a lot of energy involved in doing that. Um, and so you've got to weigh that up. But if you just want a, a low, low cost kind of way, you've got to look at the biology. Mm, uh, so yeah. it's, the filtering could be dropping things out chemically, um, precipitating stuff out like phosphates. Uh, you could get some adsorption of phosphates onto clay particles, and that's a physical thing. Or you can get bacteria and plants and other things actively reducing the nutrients themselves through all these processes we talked about. So there's a whole range of things that can be, and you might need some combination of the chemical, the physical, and the biological to really clean water up enough to be able to be uh, drinkable. Right. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, really, we've only, we've only got one filter and it's the earth. So how do we keep that running in, you know, so that it, it we can have clean water? Well, I, I, yeah, I look, it's always been, you know, from my permaculture background and, and the things I promote is uh, the soil is the key. It always has been the key. Mm. And uh, if we get the soil right, we end up getting the plants healthy and people healthy. And uh, I've always advocated that while we like the idea of, of growing plants, what we really should be doing is growing soil. And that's the most important thing we need to do is to repair the damaged landscapes and to build soil. And when we build soil and, and grow soil and we change soil, uh, we can get healthy soil and we get the right balance. And if we have the healthy soil, we're basically going to be able to have uh, all these things in play to um, to be able to have be active filters, biological filters of our waterways and to obviously get much better quality of water going into them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't help when people obviously pollute waterways and um, and dump things in waterways. Uh, the sad thing is that West Australians, probably especially in Australia, have a poor water literacy and a poor water management literacy, and uh, they don't kind of get it. Mm-hmm. But there's things that could be done, um, and uh, just a matter of getting the message out there as best we can. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm actually heading off tomorrow to um, – uh, help with a project uh, through the Forever Project with Chris Ferreira of um, helping people reduce their nutrient runoff off off their um, lawns and gardens. And we we did this project. We've done this project for I think it's eight years now, uh, every two years. And one area that we did called Bennett Springs, um, because it was a spring and it was a very small water catchment area, they were able to measure the um, nitrate and phosphate levels. Uh, coming out of the spring and see the difference between when we went in, I think we went in and educated over 200 households. Yeah. Um, and s- simple things like how to use wetting agent, how to build organic matter in your soil. Yeah. And actually seeing a difference over uh, six to 12 months. There's, there's actually a difference when people just know a few things to do. Yeah. It certainly is a lot to do with education and, uh, uh, I think there's some moves in local government and that to look at uh, obviously running uh, workshops with, for people about sustainable living practices and um, and also sustainable cities and um, and looking at the whole water aspects of it all and, and, and people being involved and more aware of uh, where water comes from and, and the, the true costs of water and how water should be uh, looked after. Mm. Um, and, and it's a slow process, uh, but it's good to see it is starting. Yeah, um, and and people are becoming a little bit more aware of, of the importance of water, certainly in our drying climate. Yeah, okay, Ross, could you talk a bit about that? Our, our drying climate, especially here in Perth. Um, if people don't know, um, Perth is on uh, coastal plains. We've got hills behind us. We've got a river running through. It's very similar to uh, Los Angeles with the Sacramento River. Um, w- what would you, I guess? Ideally, say 50 years, 100 years out from now, what what would you see as some of the things that have been implemented? Well, I, I think the, the answer certainly not is not more desal plants, yeah. uh, which is where the government's heading. Yeah. Uh, there has to be a lot of more grassroots kind of stuff. There has to be a lot more stormwater harvesting. So um, Kalamunda, for example, Shai Kalamunda has, has got one of the first uh, stormwater harvest management systems, they collect the stormwater runoff into drains uh, through a creek, I think it's Woodlupine Creek, I could be wrong, and um, they actually mine it, mine the water, and they filter it and process it, and they inject it back into the aquifer. 
So they're trying to uh, stop the runoff that eventually just goes down to the river and out to the ocean and hold water higher up in the landscape and, and re-inject it. Now, we need to have – there'll be a lot more stringent use of bores. Uh, obviously, licensing, et cetera, will definitely come in. Um, I'm pretty confident that uh, new homes will have to be grey water and rainwater ready, mm. and eventually they'll have to be forced to have a grey water or rainwater system in their home. Currently, the uptake is quite low. Uh, probably the lowest in, in Australia. So that all those kind of things have to take in play. So mm. it's going to be a an integrated approach uh, using the grey water, the rainwater, stormwater, all these aspects. So people are recycling all of their whole wastewater stream and using on their gardens. And I think there's going to be a lot more of that happening as mm. well. So uh, people are kind of using not letting the water go down to the sewer or, or, or whatever. Uh, if we can reduce the amount of water going to the sewer, we can reduce the cost of the infrastructure to maintain all that and the huge uh, loss of water. Um, at the moment, as you know, the Water Corporation is treating the wastewater and injecting it on trial back into the aquifer. That's a, a good move. Uh, at the moment, we're just pushing it out of the ocean. It's always been out of the ocean. What we need to see, of course, is that water being not only pushed into the aquifer but used in an agriculture and a horticulture endeavour. Mm. So there needs to be a lot more moves, like they do in some country towns where the local treated wastewater fertilises the school or the, or, the, or the town oval, football oval or parks. That needs to happen a lot more in Perth. Okay. So so there's, it seems like there's, I picked out two sort of major areas is the wastewater and then the stormwater catchment, like you said, in um, the Kalamunda that's doing that. Yeah. So can you actually explain to us a bit more about what what happens in that system in Kalamunda? So they're mining the water, so they have some big reservoir, is that right, that they well, catch not really a reservoir, no. What they're doing is basically, if you can imagine stormwater running off through drains along roads, through culverts into a drain, into a little creek. Along the creek, um, they've put in some pumps, and as the water goes through, they pump the water. It's probably about a kilometre. It could be more. They pump it up to an oval. I think it's Hartfield Park. And they've got a treatment plant, which is a very large kind of filter system, et cetera. So they ask Is this you, a biofilter or is it like mechanical? Um, well, it's, well I, I would have, in that sense, it could be. It's more of a, a, a physical kind of granular filter. Okay. Um, so they've got to take out, of course, as you can imagine, any leaves and sticks and sediment and stuff. And so there's a, a number of different types of filters in play. Um, and the whole idea is that you get the water to a very, very high standard uh, through the filtration and, and so forth. And then and then it's pumped uh, downwards through a bore to re-inject it back into an aquifer below the ground. Um, and that's useful because if the council is using the bore water nearby to, to water all the ovals. There's a very extensive oval system there, lots of different ovals there, mm. different teams. Then obviously they're capturing water down the track, treating it, injecting it back in the aquifer, then they're cycling that water back onto their ovals. So they're obviously reducing um, their water usage and stopping um, the, the known bore aquifer from drying out too quickly, which is happening in a lot of places throughout Perth. Mm, yeah, uh, I remember just before I finished up landscaping, we um, were having quite a few issues in sort of Mosman Park area. This is an area that's like a, a isthmus, sort of uh, you've got the ocean on one side and the river on the other side. And um, people's bores are pumping up salt water now. So um, I, I specifically remember one um, property where they had drip lines and you could see the salt crystals growing up through the mulch and coming out the top of the mulch just because yeah. of, the, of the water that they're pumping up. So this is a real issue, isn't it? Well, certainly um, we're not getting the rainfall that we used to have as years gone by. Um, <clears throat> for those who don't know, our southwest of Doe is one of the hot spots uh, of known reduced rainfall in the years to come and has been falling quite dramatically in the last century. Uh, I've heard something like 30 millimetres every decade our rainfall is falling. So... Certainly since the mid-70s, there was a noticeable change in drop in our annual rainfall, and this is predicted to continue. So we are in a falling rainfall situation, 
but we're also in a period where we're getting unusual rain events. So we might get more thunderstorms or more downpours or more damage or more extremes of weather and more extremes of rainfall. And we just had, I think it was the the hottest May day we've had for I don't know how many hundreds of years. Mm. Well, certainly was a long time. Um, and so we're having some unusual extremes of weather. Um, so we're having a climate change. It doesn't mean that we're going to dry out completely or overheat. It just means we're having a different weather patterns. But we certainly are in a falling rainfall. So our southwest of Western Australia is in a falling rainfall area. But our northwest is in an increasing rainfall area. So there's moves at the moment through the government and others to develop the northwest through the Ord River and the Kununurra area, for example, as being a, uh, a prime production area for agriculture and develop that because the rainfall will proportionally get larger and there'll be more water there. And therefore, you better grow Perth's food mm. <laughs> in the northwest and ship it down to Perth because the southwest uh, is becoming less and less uh, viable. Very interesting. So it sounds like permaculture could be a, a major solution to a lot of these issues we're talking about. Well, I think so. I mean, permaculture does have uh, the, the idea of permaculture is the design aspect. Um, so it's carefully thinking about how we can make integrated systems uh, all work together <clears throat> so we can uh, obviously be have more production. So, it, you know, it's a whole, it does incorporate some techniques of growing food and and, and looking after our animals and, and designing better houses and recycling wastes and so forth. And so if people are looking at the growth industries you like, I mean, I realised many years ago that if you got into food, energy or water, you'd have an income. And I chose water. Mm. But, uh, you know, food is crucial. We need to be able to teach people how to grow food. And we need to have, uh, you know, food being grown uh, more on people's properties. We need to get rid of some of the cosmetic plants that people have in their front yard. And uh, if someone goes out their front door or even the back door and says, what can I eat? And they can't find anything, then that's not good. We need to change that culture. Mm. So we are growing more things and people are growing a little bit at least to offset uh, their budget. Mm-hmm. Even in a little uh, villa like me, I'm trying to grow little bits and pieces here and there. But um, the hope is that there's going to be more um, urban agriculture, more permaculture, more uh, guerrilla gardening, hopefully as well, um, to all really tie this in together to to become more of a like a, a regenerative uh, future. Well, that's what's happening with the transition movement, which arose out of a permaculture course uh, in England uh, a long time ago. Um, and it's growing uh, great, great bounds um, and it's a huge movement, you know, generated in, in Perth. There's quite a few transition towns or transition initiatives. Mm-hmm. Mundaring has one. There's Guildford. There's a few down south. Um, so there's a... A growing movement, if you like, of uh, people who, as you said, want to be grill gardeners, who want to u- utilise street verges, who want to grow local and uh, buy local, um, look at alternative currencies of finances so they can trade, um, you know, with their local community. So that's a – and to live more sustainably. And, and that's a, a growing movement and that's just one of uh, many kind of movements where people are looking at ways they can uh, live better. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Um, my mind is going back to to water and to. Uh, oh, we got sidetracked, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. That's good. The, um, in, in in specifically, you know, I'm fascinated about. I heard an interview with uh, a a natural pool um, builder in the yeah. UK talking about, um, you know, obviously putting plants in, not having any fish or anything in there, so there's low nutrient levels. And they got the water tested and there was a high number of um, life forms, but they couldn't count one pathogenic form within that, yeah. in that water system. Is that is that possible here in WA? Oh, yeah. There are some natural pools uh, already installed in Western Australia. I've seen a few myself uh, years gone by where people, you know, the kids have left. There's the people, the couple living there are getting old and not using the pool and hating to maintain it and spend a lot of money on chlorine and filtering and cleaning and so they convert it into a um, natural pool. And so there's a few of them around and uh, basically um, a lot of them basically just uh, condition the pond 
I have some plants, put some shelves in there. Even whether you have some marron or fish in there, it's another issue. Uh, obviously, you probably want to – if you're swimming in it, it might be a bit scary if you're getting marron chlorine at your feet, <laughs> um, which might be nice to get uh, dinner though. Uh, and then it gets pumped out through typically a little kind of a, a reed bed sand filter thing again to clean it up. So it's just cycled. So you're still having that movement of water. Mm. And when you have a, a really, uh, you know, active ecosystem, an established ecosystem, a stable ecosystem, then you won't get mosquitoes. Uh, so, you know, if you condition the water and set it up, there's a few hiccups to start with and a few things to, to be concerned about. But once it gets set up, it uh, seems to manage itself pretty well. And uh, if you can reduce the nutrients uh, as best you can, that's useful because too much nutrients will cause too much algae to grow. So you've got to kind of uh, get that kind of fine balance. But it's all very doable and it ha- has been done. Mm, okay. Um, and, you know, yesterday I was uh, working on a job and they had a rainwater tank. So I always do this. I'll, I'll test. I'll just drink like, you know, say half a cup of rainwater see if I feel sick, you know, like a couple <laughs> hours later. And if not, then I'll drink a bit more. But um, would it be possible to set up like a, a natural pool system as a sort of rainwater tank so you can take that water and use it for drinking? Are you saying to use the, the, the natural pool as the rainwater tank itself? Yeah, uh, yeah. instead of having, yeah. say, a poly tank, use a, a more like a reservoir sort of system, but have it clean enough that it would, you know, eat, you know, put it through a carbon filter or whatever, but at least use it for drinking. Well, as you, as you, uh, as you self said, that uh, once you get an ecosystem happening, you're going to get a variety of life in there, and you probably want to get rid of that life, even though there's no pathogens per se. Um, you probably don't want to be, uh, you know, looking at insects swimming in your drinking water <laughs> uh, or even bacteria because there's always risk. Right. So, you know, people don't often put in safe measures to to reduce that, you know, in their rainwater tanks. I mean, most people do not, for example, put in first flushes and leaf screens uh, in their rainwater-collected water mm. and uh, the pipes just go straight from the roof into the tank and um, if you actually got your water tested, you'd be horrified to see the fecal coliforms that are in yeah. there. <laughs> uh, because, you know, you're getting dust and bird poo on the roof and it's just washing st- – or dead rats in the gutter. You know, oh, you're just right. getting them uh, washed into the tank and so people aren't really uh, vigilant enough to put in some, you know, some things to make it safer and you need to do that. If you are concerned – uh, obviously, you should always filter the water before it goes to a house anyway, but you can put in carbon filters, et cetera, reduced odours and smells, and even UV UV disinfection. So you could have a, a dual filter uh, that would clean up the water pretty well uh, and, you, and you have UV so that it actually was disinfected so that you would guarantee uh, safety. Uh, and that is important for, for some things. We put these things in a lot of tanks up in the hills where people are reliant solely on rainwater. Mm. And um, we need to set these tanks up properly so that we're not getting rubbish in there and the water is safe to drink and, and people won't get sick. So it's just peace of mind stuff when you have young families for just sure. to put yeah. in some things in play so that you guarantee their safety. Yeah, yeah. And you need to have some sort of safety standard, don't you? You can't, you can't just have people... Well, like, you know, putting their black water straight on their veggies. Well, all that's illegal, of course. Uh, you can't even direct your laundry water uh, through a hose onto your fruit trees. That's illegal too. Uh, people do it. It's overlooked by councils. But at the end of the day, you probably want to put in a proper approved grey water system so that at least you had uh, the hair and lint being filtered out. Uh, you know, we you had a system in play that was sized appropriately for the volume generated by the house. You had mm-hmm. the right amount of irrigation area allocated to take the loading on that soil. So it's a bit involved and there is a lot of uh, people around uh, who can give you advice and install these or provide these systems to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Dr. Osmaz, I really appreciated your, your time talking on The Probiotic Life and um, – we always like to sort of end up maybe a little bit more philosophical in terms of a probiotic life, creating life around you. What What's one thing that you would uh, say that we could do or take away from this conversation? Well, I, there's quite a few things, actually. I, I think um, to create life, I mean, whenever we grow plants or we germinate seed, we create life. 
And that always gives me still a good buzz when I see cuttings that I've taken from trees sprout and grow and have their own life uh, or seeds that I've collected, uh, you know, sprout and grow into trees and they themselves produce their fruit or seeds. And that always gives me a, a warm satisfaction that, you know, I'm kind of doing something worthwhile. Um, obviously, the other aspect is uh, mentioned a few times in passing is the idea of safeguarding family. And I think that's crucial, mm. um, teaching young people how to grow food and where food comes from. And it's great to see all that happening in schools these days and more happening. Um, but there's certainly a lot more opportunity for people to become involved in, in education things and teaching others some of the things that you know. And I think that's important too. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for sharing um, of your time and your knowledge, Russ. No worries. Um, and feel free to uh, plug any books. You've, got, you've written a couple of books, is that right? And you've got a couple of websites as well? Yeah, well, I've got a few books. Um, the first one for people who want just to know how to do simple things, uh, some projects to do about how to make you know compost or to design simple garden structures or do some sheet mulching or plant a tree is uh, Getting Started in Permaculture. It's got about 50 projects in there. Uh, but how you can recycle cool drink bottles and that kind of stuff and do lots of interesting things. Then for those a bit more serious and you want to undertake a design a design course, the book called The Basics of Permaculture Design uh, is the one you would need. It tells you how to do designs and the, the tools and equipment and it's got obviously chapters on permaculture in schools and some strategies for schools. It's also got rural applications, urban applications, um, a bit about appropriate building technology, water harvesting. Then the latest book, as I mentioned earlier, with the um, How to Permaculture Your Life is the one that um, I wrote with just facts in it. So that what are the best fruits in the Mediterranean climate or in the subtropics? What are the most nutritious vegetables you can grow? Uh, it also has a lot more about how to make hot compost, etc., and to build soil and soil amendments and, and, and those kind of things. Uh, so it has lots of other chapters about appropriate technologies. It has a bit about the wastewater systems and grey waters in there and rainwater. So there's a whole lot of different things in, in that book uh, that I hadn't, I hadn't written about before that I've included in the new one. Great. Um, a couple of DVDs, um, Renewable Energy, wraps uh, about using solar panels and stuff like that to generate power and also Fantastic. passive solar design of buildings, how to build an energy-efficient home. There's two DVDs. And the websites, are, the main one is the waterinstallations.com. There's redplanetplants.com.au, which is the nursery. Um, so that's probably the most important. And Canlight Farm has its own website.com.au. That's mm-hmm. called CF Permaculture, Canlight Farm CF Permaculture. Uh, I need to update that, but often we'll give you some information about permaculture and books, and there's a bookshop on there as well. Fantastic. Well, like I said, we will put all of that in the show notes because we want to um, support the people that we have on the podcast. So um, thank you very much, Ross, for uh, being on The Probiotic Life. Thanks, Ben, and thank you for your listeners. Bye-bye. There you go. What did you think of that one? I really enjoyed talking to Ross about water and water is something that I'm becoming more interested in, more passionate about. So don't forget to check out all of those links. We'll have those in the show notes for you. And don't forget to share. If you got some value out of today or if you like the way that the podcast is going, Tell a couple of friends who are three people that you could tell today about the podcast. Uh, We always love it when you give us rating and reviews. And we love to hear how you are living a probiotic life. So I hope that you are inspired today, that you are empowered to live a probiotic life. And may the beneficial microbes be with you. And until next time, cheers. listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life.